As we uh, get into the sermon this morning, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans. We're going to start in Romans. Romans chapter 12, if you're using the Pew Bible. Here, I'll give it to you here. If you're using the... Oh, I got that wrong. Ignore that. It's a 12, not a 13. Getting numbers wrong all, all over the place today. So Romans 12, uh, 14 through 21. The page number is correct, though, if you're using uh, the Pew Bible as I am. It is page number 948. We're also going to jump down into Samuel eventually. And so I'll give both of those to you so you can grab them and uh, get them ready. Introduce Romans just for a second so you kind of have some context. The Roman church, much like the church here and the church really everywhere and every time, is facing two great forces, two great conflicts, internal conflicts. For them, it's racial division. Um, but, but every church has some sense of conflict. There's always going to be, wherever there's people, there's fighting, there's conflict, there's difficulty, there's change. And they're facing an outside culture that is entirely pagan. I know some of us look at the news and we bemoan things. We say, oh, I can't believe this is happening. Well, they had it worse, and they were still able to make it. You know, So relax. Everybody chill out, right? It's, it's going to be okay. Uh, and, and with these two great forces impinging upon this group of believers, Paul makes an extended argument about the grace and power of God. He talks about all kinds of things. We talked about it actually last fall. If you're interested in that series, you can jump online and, and check that out. But as he moves forward, he begins to make practical application. What does the grace of God, the atonement of God that, that Jack talked about here regarding the table, how does that empower our lives? What does it look like? What does it actually practically mean. You ever sit in church and you, you, you sit there thinking, man, that sounded really nice, but I'm not really sure how to do it. I, I'm willing to say that I'm at fault for that sometimes, right? This is as practical as practical gets. It's a series of proverbs. Everybody know what a proverb is? A short saying that teach you, teaches you a moral lesson. This is a series of proverbs here in Romans chapter 12. Verses 14 through 21, and I'm going to read that, so go ahead and look at your Bibles and follow along, and I'll give you a pause at the end of each one of those Proverbs so you can see how it lines out. The first one begins like this. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of everyone. Everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for its written vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, and by doing so, you heap burning coals. Shame. Upon his head. Lastly, perhaps summarizing all of it is this. Do not be overcome by evil, 
but rather overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. To people much like us. And you could take these principles, these actions that you see right here, plain, simple, clear, and you can apply them to your lives. You can apply them to how you parent. You can apply them to your marriage. You can apply them to that jerk at work. Anybody got a jerk at work? Like, come on, this is church. You can be honest here. Any of you the jerks at work? Right? No, I'm just kidding. Paul raises his hand. <laughs> at least he didn't point at me. That would have been worse. You can apply that to the conflict. Anytime you're facing conflict, anytime you're facing difficulty, anytime you're facing a, 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 some kind of violence, anytime you're facing these things, this, these passages speak directly to what it looks like for the Christian to live out Jesus-iness in their life. This is based then upon two tremendous beliefs. Their beliefs that ground, found, and guide everything that it means to be a Christian today. If you call yourself a Christian, these should ground, found, and guide your lives. And they are this. First, that God is full of grace. That goes for the person you like the least. That goes for the most despicable of all despicable people. The most horrific crime. The most heinous sin. The most wicked person. God is full of grace to every single person. Even those whom you wish God would not be graceful to. Secondly is this. God will vindicate the righteous. There we have the grace of God represented in the face of Jesus Christ and his people, the church, who are constantly out there preaching grace, 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 grace. Why is grace so important and imperative? Certainly because of our sin and need, but secondarily because there is coming a day of judgment. There is coming a point when God will call in all accounts. There is vindication. That means that injustice is answered. That means that sin is dealt with. That means that when you respond, good for evil, and it doesn't get you anywhere or anything, God sees it. God sees it. You know it's that very important part, part here? Leave room, right? Leave room for God to do something about it. Because if you step in and you get your vengeance, if you, get the, if, you, if you respond good for evil or evil for good, God will see that and he will fill that gap. God will respond. So we are never to avenge ourselves. And this is somewhat of the theme that we've seen over the past three weeks. We've been engaging... Three stories, this is the third, the, the chapter 26, if you want to find that in your Bibles, don't, but don't lose Romans, because we'll be there again. So if you want to jump to 1 Samuel chapter 26, it's page 249 if you're using the Pew Bible, and keep, your, keep a bookmark or a pencil or a finger somewhere in Romans, because we'll be back. Here we have seen the story of vengeance, the story of, of conflict, the story of, in this case, violence itself, 
But we can apply that, I think, to our own personal lives, our family lives, our business lives, wherever you find yourself. David is in a situation where he is being chased by Saul, his lord, his king, his boss, maybe. You know, you put it in your own context. David has got a chance there in chapter 24 to get back at Saul. He has a chance and opportunity to get vengeance, and he rejects that. Next, we have another instance where David is wronged by another man, not Saul, but, but by another man. He's cheated by a scoundrel, by a fool, by a good-for-nothing, whose name literally means that. And David embraces violence. He embraces vengeance. And so then God has to send Abigail, a wise and uh, beautiful woman, to stop David, to stand in the midst, to prevent David from committing this heinous sin. And then lastly, today, we're looking at, again, the same kind of situation we had in chapter 24. And that is, David has an opportunity to get vengeance against Saul again. So this has uh, one kind of story arc over, maybe meta-narrative or, or overworking story. And that is this. It is wrong for God's anointed to seek vengeance. It is wrong for God's anointed to seek vengeance. Now we can apply that directly to David just as an individual because he is anointed by God. But all y'all, if you're here today and you're a Christian, you've been washed in the waters of regeneration. You've been filled. You've been anointed, as it were, with the Spirit. You are God's chosen people as well. It is therefore also wrong for you to seek vengeance. And that's what this story is about. Now, let's tell the story. Here is your world. Uh, here is Israel. My hand is shaking because I have too much caffeine in my blood. Or not enough, I don't know. If you zoom in uh, from here to here, this is the, 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 the country of Israel. And this is the outline, generically, of the kingdom that Saul is in control of and part of. And most of our stories have taken place right down in here, in this region here. And this is about the region where we're speaking of right now. Right about there. The hill of Hekila. The hill of Hekila. And this is where David and his men, if you remember, there's somewhere between 400 and 600 men in there. And they're hanging out. They're hiding out, I should say. In this area, it's a wilderness, desert kind of desolate area, and they're hanging out there. And the people who live in that area, too, over in here, just kind of next door to it, the people of Ziph, which is just kind of a fun thing to say. I think I've said that before, but I just like saying Ziph. We should have named the kid that Ziph. I could have said it all the time. Laura stopped so many awesome names. I mean, I had so many awesome names. She hated all of them. So, Saul, uh, the Ziff, people of Ziph go to Saul and say, hey, you know, you know David's like hanging out next door to us. Why don't you come and get him, right? That's what you're all about. And so David rounds up, or Saul rounds up, 3,000 warriors to go and take down David's four to 600 warriors, which is excessive, right? This is the kind of man we're dealing with here. This is the kind of man Saul is. A bit excessive, he wants to make sure he can get the job done because, again, what is David to the ancient world? He's the Chuck Norris of the ancient world, right? And so he is a force to be reckoned with. His round houses take down houses. 
And so, uh, and so they go and they, they bring all these men to the area and David sends out his spies because it's pretty difficult to hide 3,000 soldiers and so they're pretty easy to spot and they, they find the soldiers and the, the spies come back to David and they say, David, we know where he's at. And so David takes his, his two right hand, his two best men and he, he brings them over to, to the kind of the encampment area and he says, who wants to go down with me? He's says this to Ahimelech the Hittite, Joab's, and to Joab's brother Abishai, Abishai, the son of Zeruah, who will go down with me, this is in verse 6, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And we learn two important lessons from this verse. One, the Bible is an amazing place to find baby names. Abishai, great name. If you have babies you know, that are coming out anytime soon, suggest some great names. The second thing is this. David is insane. This is just a word of kind of like just helpful advice. If you find 3,000 people trying to kill you, going into the middle of them is a bad idea. Just not a good one. Generally, if you find 3,000 people trying to kill you, you should... Run away. Some of you are very wise people. I'm glad you're here in our church. Like, this, is, this is wonderful. Yes, you should run away because this is crazy. But listen, what is David again to the ancient world? He's the Chuck Norris. And listen, you don't sneak up on Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris sneaks up on you. And this is what we have. He gathers his guys together. And of course, there's only one guy who's crazy enough, Abishai. His name's slightly cooler, and that's probably why. They sneak down into the midst. They, go, they make it through 3,000. I mean, imagine, and, and we're not talking about like tents. We're not talking about, this isn't like mash, right? This is dudes laying on the ground, sleeping. 3,000 of them. And they're tiptoeing through to get to the center where David, or where Saul and his general Abner are sleeping. And they make it. I mean, they make it. It's insane. And Abishai says, we made it. I thought for sure we were going to bite it. Like, I thought we were toast. But we made it. And so what does that tell you? What lesson do you take away from that other than this? Kill Saul, right? I mean, kill him. Take over the kingship. Everybody loves you. I mean, remember, I mean, we're talking, like, who, if he, if he stands up and says, make me king, everyone says, okay, well, we better do that, right? I mean, that's, that's what we've got in David. So, so Abishai actually says to David, he says, he says, let me kill him. I'll spear him to the ground. I won't have to strike twice. Because, you know, of course, Abishai is the Trivet of the ancient world. Apparently, we don't have a lot of Walker, Texas Ranger fans in the room here this morning. That's okay. That's all right. I forgive you all. We can pray for you later. I won't have to strike twice. We will kill. And, th- and this makes sense, doesn't it? It makes perfect sense. Pragmatically, you have the opportunity to end the life of the person who is seeking your life. You have the opportunity to finally ascend to the throne that God has already promised you. Remember, David's anointed king. It just hasn't come into effect yet. You have the opportunity to ascend to the position that God has promised you on every level of human experience. Abishai is 100% correct. But David says no. 
Why does he say no? There is something that we have to understand about the way in which God works. And the way in which God works is not on human pragmatism. God does not, in Scripture and faith, and, and we as Christians do not assume that what is in front of us, what seems possible in our eyes, is the only possible thing. Listen to, again, to the words from Romans. What did Romans, what did Romans say? Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and don't curse them. Does that make sense? Thank you, somebody. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This might make a little more sense. Let your empathy be real. Let your empathy be real. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the powerful, the beautiful, the well... Wait, I messed that up. Sorry. Oh, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, because that's how you get ahead in life, right? Do not be overcome with evil, but use good. Good to overcome evil. All of these things are echoed by Paul, by Jesus, and David has in this moment grabbed a hold of this truth, of this principle, and he is living it out. Because again, we have those two great truths. We believe, believe in the grace of God. Faith does not rely upon all that is seen, but rather assumes, assumes that God will act. Assumes that God will act. Uh, David says to Abishai directly, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die. He'll get sick, he'll get old, something, he'll get hit by a car crossing the road, you know, whatever. He will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and he will perish. God will take care of this. And I will trust in God to do what only God can do. Again, hearkening back to the kind of thing we were talking about last week. Where James says, be slow to anger. Right? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and even slower to become angry. Why? Because your wrath, your anger, your vengeance does not produce the righteousness of God. Instead, what do we do? We over. Nabal, remember last week, Nabal cheated David. And what did David plan to do? Not just him. Every single male. Like, I'm going to go and kill every boy in your house. Like, again, like that's the way vengeance works. If you get in, give in to a, a, a trickle of it, pretty soon you've just opened it up and it's just pouring. It's pouring out. So, as they've come up on Saul, uh, they found Saul, they found Abner, the general, next to him, and they see that Saul has a spear next to his side, because nobody has learned their lesson about this dude in spears. So they take his spear, they take the glass of water, David takes the glass of water that's by his bed, which I do too, so that makes sense, and, uh, and, and, they, and they go off a distance, Far enough away that, you know, you can't, can't hit him right away with an arrow or spear or something. And, and he shouts. David shouts out to Abner first. He says to Abner, will you not answer, Abner? And Abner groggily, who is this that's calling? And David says, are you not a man? Who is like you in all of Israel? You are the generalist of all generals. Like you are, you are so general that, that you know, 
I don't know what to do with that. You're, you're awesome, right? You're, you, and yet you have failed to do this. You failed to keep watch over the king. For that, you should be put to death. Because I was right there. I could have killed the king. Your whole job is to make sure that the king lives through this and you let him down. Who are So, I mean, I like this because, like, David's a good guy, but he's not a great guy. I, you know, I, maybe I aim pretty low, but I'm aiming for good. Maybe I'll hit great. But he's picking on Abner, right? He's, he's messing with Abner here. And kind of making fun of him and mocking him for not doing his job. Well, well, Saul hears his voice and he knows David's voice. And he says to him, and this is sort of ironic. I was just like, ironic. Is that you, David, my son? Well, if that's what a dad is like, you know, right? Right? Is that you, David, my son? And David pleads his case. David says, yeah, it's me. And I was there and I could have killed you, but I didn't. Because I am not your enemy. I am not your enemy. In fact, he says in verse 19, Now, therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servants. The Lord has stirred you up against me. So if, if God's the one that sort of evoked this whole situation, where now you're, you're coming to kill me because of that, because of God, may he accept an offering. So here, it could be an offering, like an offering offering, like an animal sacrifice or something. But it really seems to me here that David's speaking of himself. Let him accept this offering. I will die if God demands it. But if men have brought this about, then let them be cursed. Let them, let God vindicate me against them. I love that faith. That's a really deep, deep faith. Willing to put himself in God's hands And in verse 21, Saul recognizes, finally, right, finally recognizes that David is not his enemy. And in verse 21, he says, I have sinned. Return, David, my son, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. David converts Saul but not on the first try. See, our temptation sometimes, I think, is that we are willing to respond with good against evil, but if we don't see immediate results, what do we do? Well, that didn't work. Give up. Somebody said give up. Well, that didn't work. God's way didn't work. It didn't pan out right away for me. And so, hey, forget it. We're moving on. I'll, do, I'll respond evil for evil now. No, no instead, instead, what do we see? David has a consistent attitude. Now, he's applying this to Saul and not to Nabal, but that's an issue we'll tackle later. He's, he's applying this to Saul. And, and, and after several attempts of pouring that into Saul's life, Saul finally gets it. So, what does that tell us? It reminds me of, uh, of Peter. Remember Peter came to Jesus? And he said to Jesus, how many times should I forgive the brother who sins against me? Do you remember do you remember what Jesus said? Seven? Peter suggests seven times, which is generous, right? I mean, if somebody cheats you seven times, and you forgive them seven times, I mean, what are you? You're a good person. You aren't great, but you're good. Jesus is aiming us towards great. And what does he says? He says, no, 70 times seven. Like there is no end to the grace that you are called to give to other people in forgiveness just as 
God in Christ has no limit to the amount of grace he's willing to give to you. Because I am pretty sure that God has forgiven you more than seven times. Can I get a witness? Yes? Yeah? I know that's true of me. Uh, And so what do we do in response to that? We echo forward what God is up to in the world. Again, going to that principle, the grace of God. The grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God poured out upon sinful people who do not deserve it, and yet God does it. And isn't it interesting, and this is sort of where we come to a point of of criticism against David, because David is willing to apply that to Saul because he thinks of Saul as though Saul is in a special position, and to some extent, he is right. Saul is in a special position. Saul is the king, and, and and he is a servant of the king. And yet, he then makes a mistake in the previous chapter from last week, right? He applies this grace of God toward Saul, but not toward Nabal. And aren't we like that? We are willing to forgive our friends. I mean, I have friends that have wronged me. I have friends that I have wronged. And, and I say, I'm sorry. And they, oh, forget it, man. And we don't, even, we don't remember it. We don't bring it up again. We don't hold on to those things. We're so willing to forgive maybe your spouse, maybe your children. A lot of times in marriages, I find that's actually not true. And people are willing and quite able to bring forward, remember when you, remember when you, remember when you, remember when you, remember when you. Remember when you? Or we're willing to forgive people, and then other people we're willing to just cast aside. We're willing to get our vengeance. We're willing to do whatever we can to, to get them down. And this happens in individual lives. In, in, in your individual lives, it happens large scale in terms of racial injustice. It happens all across our lives where we are willing to forgive we're willing to look with grace. We're willing to assume the best of a certain person or a certain group of people. And then if you turn the lens just a little bit to the side, those people, those people are not worthy. They don't receive that same attitude. And perhaps they are wrong. Perhaps that person in your life is truly in the wrong. And you truly are the recipient of injustice. What do you do when you're in that situation? Well, you can take one of two routes. You can go David's route with Nabal and walk with a very pragmatic and yet sinful attitude. Or you can move towards the grace of God. You can move towards Christ-likeness. You can move towards what God hopes for all people. And that is the situation we have right here with David. That David, the second time, of course this has happened several times where Saul has tried to kill him. But the second time in which David has directly engaged Saul. This second time, God has brought to to them a, a kind of reconciliation. Saul does not, from this point on in the story, seek his life. There's a peace that is brought about. Are you willing to be the person that reaches out with goodness even if the hand is slapped away and reaches out with goodness even if the hand is slapped away and reaches with goodness even when the hand is slapped away and over and over and over again that you may be like your father who is in heaven. There's this story in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9 uh, where Jesus heals a blind man um, and this causes all kinds of controversy. And, and the, good, the good church-going folk, 
um, are kind of in an uproar about it. And go, go back and read the whole story if you want. But there's a little piece at the end that's really been sitting with me lately and kind of convicting me and trying to, it's been making me think. Um, where Jesus is, is conversing with this, this man who he just healed. And of course, the, the, the religious folks, the, the good church going folks, the good people who've got their Bibles with them this morning, folks are standing around and, he asked the blind man, do you believe? Do you believe in me? And the blind man says, yes, Lord, I believe. And Jesus says, for judgment I came into the world. What kind of judgment did Jesus bring when he came into the world? Not the final, not the vindication, that comes later. What judgment did he bring into the world? He brought the grace kind of judgment into the world. That those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. That I'm able to call out the truth. That's sort of a difficult phrase to think through. I encourage you to think about that. But the religious people around him got caught that Jesus was kind of sideline accusing them. And they said, are we blind? Are you saying that we're blind? In other words, are you saying we don't know the truth? Are you saying we don't practice the truth? Are you saying that we're not doing what's right? Are you saying that we're not walking in the grace of God? Are you saying that we are wrong, Jesus? Is that what you're saying right now? And Jesus says this. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. But what this uh, has been speaking to me is that there are many ways in which I am convinced that I see. I am convinced that I am right. I am convinced that I have the truth. I am convinced that I'm living it out properly. And yet, it is very and entirely possible that I am wrong. That I am not right. That I have not been living according to the justice that God describes in Scripture. And that maybe I am blind and I need Jesus to help me see. And this is why we read these stories again and again. This is why we come to the scriptures again and again. Because they have the power to open our eyes. They have the power to help us see. They have the power to make us people of grace. People who are willing, as we said last, the last few weeks, to listen and begin with somebody else's story, to hear someone else, and then bring God's gospel of grace to them that they might have a chance at the reconciliation, the grace, the joy, the life, the spirit that you have. How long has God been working on you? Because he's been working on me a long time, and there's still a lot of construction underway. And if we begin with that recognition, grace can be more powerful in our lives. And we can be the people who are quick to listen, slow to speak, and even slower to become angry. We could be the people that Jesus says, no, you are the ones who don't have guilt because you aren't always claiming to be as seeing as you think. As we come to a conclusion this morning, if you're wrestling with your faith, if you're wrestling with something, and you need prayer, you need someone to talk, we're gonna have our elders down front I want to invite you and encourage you to come forward. If you just need prayer because times are hard. Times are hard, aren't they? And you need somebody to pray with you. You need somebody to walk with you. We invite you to come forward as well. Again, we'll have our elders down front to lay hands, to pray.
with and for you. Please stand as we sing this song.